Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Colin Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Olbrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. Today in the studio, <laughs> we have Rosalind Skillen. Who's Travel. come all the way up from Dublin on a very rainy, stormy Monday. The third storm event in this winter, right? We're up to, deep, no, it must be the fourth, Debbie. Mm-hmm. And we've just experienced the wettest October on record in yeah. some parts of the country and some parts of Ireland. So, yeah, we're increasingly seeing more of this wetter, wilder mm-hmm. weather. And that's part of a rapidly accelerating trend of mm-hmm. climate breakdown. So it's really distressing to see the local impacts here mm-hmm. across the island. With flooding in Newry. Newry yeah. and Portadown mm-hmm. and Bambridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of weather. So much weather that you can almost have to talk about climate breakdown, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and as well, it's just increasingly unpredictable. You know, we also experienced a randomly hot September, mm. mini heat wave in October. There was even a marine heat wave in September as well. That's so right. it's just bound up with these weather patterns which are increasingly unpredictable. Mm. And I think that's the most frightening thing. But interesting because now we're seeing it hit Ireland, whereas before the Global South parts of Africa, India have been experiencing this for a long, long time. But mm-hmm. now maybe this represents a bit more of a wake up call mm-hmm, because it's mm-hmm. happening closer to us. So it's no longer as geographically distant as psychologically mm-hmm. distant. And hopefully it means that people will be able to make the link and people mm-hmm. will talk about it in relation to climate breakdown and not just as weather. So you're a journalist, academic, you work for an environmental... Birdwatch Ireland, yeah, yeah an environmental of course NGO. it has to be, yeah. maybe, doesn't it? Yes, uh-huh. for an NGO. You've also been involved in the environmental activist space for a long time. Yeah, quite a long time now. A lot of youth environmental activism. Mm. But I guess I was drawn into this space, not so much through the environmental biodiversity lens, but definitely more through human impacts. So the issue that motivated me was actually learning about the harmful impact of fast fashion on garment workers and their rights, but then looking more broadly at the industry as a whole, how polluting it is, how carbon intensive it is, and how garment workers at every stage of the supply chain are just treated so poorly. But then that opened up a whole new world where I was looking across different industries and making the links. So it was definitely more through the humans side Mm. and now you know over the years I'm now working in marine policy so advocating for seabirds and marine mammals and healthy seas and oceans so that's a lot more in the nature space Mm. but definitely at the beginning I was a lot more motivated by like the social justice element and then have constantly been trying to join the dots in terms of all the different social issues which are also bound up with the environmental and nature crises that Mm -hmm. we're facing too. I'm sure like a lot of people listening to this you know I didn't come from like a hard climate science background and I think that's actually really difficult because a lot of people think you need to have studied biology or geography or, you know, ecology to be involved in the environmental movement. But I studied French and Spanish, so I came from a languages background. So that was when the whole like environmental journalism piece came together. Mm. I did the BBC Young Climate Reporter. That was around the time of COP26, writing about peatland restoration and stuff and trying to see how the same skills that I'd acquired through my studies in languages, you know, communication and creativity were still relevant to the climate movement. Like worked on a series of climate murals, did one with 
Friends of the Earth. And again, that was just looking at artistic expression and the different ways that the creative and cultural sector could also play their part. So mm. I think a lot of my activism, I guess, has been focused on trying to look at the different skills that people have and see like how that is relevant because I believe that everyone has something to bring. Mm. And I think a lot of people think that like, oh no, but I like don't know enough or, you know, I didn't study this at uni or, but then their skills and their experience, their lived experience, especially for young people, I think is obviously super relevant and holds so much value. Mm. So I don't think that it should hold people back from getting involved. Well, that's the modest contribution we think this podcast might make. Yes, exactly. Storytelling. And I'm a professor in translation studies and I'm trying to get my students to think about Mm. the environment and the storytelling around it and the international flavour as well. So this concept, for example, of rights of nature Mm. didn't come from here. It came from other parts of the world. And what language do they use to speak about it? How is it folded into their constitutions and their legal um, frameworks. Yeah, I I find that really interesting. Yeah, I think the languages element is really important because even when you look at the way that people like write and talk about climate and nature, even words like carbon, net zero, like super alienating, really inaccessible. I think there was like a lot of highly technical language. So that's where my writing hopefully was trying to focus on really breaking it down. I don't think people realise how far we need to break it down. Like even how people can like visualise what carbon is and what that means all these words that we just throw around there's so many acronyms in the environmental movement yeah Yeah, so trying to communicate in a way that's really accessible and that invites people in and language that's also quite enabling as well you know that gives people agency Mm -hmm. that reminds me of one of suan's book bears is the word developer yes i want another word for a developer i have thought of the word it's hard to say though greed developer (laughs) (laughs) it's a portmanteau word yeah yeah because they're not developers the conversation we had the other day with some people at niea and talking Mm. about well that's progress Mm -hmm. we were talking about a housing development that Mm. was damaging the environment and yeah progress and development are all about building Mm -hmm. and money making But no, we are the developers. We are developing new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. We're developing new ideas. Mm -hmm. We're place protectors, water protectors, Mm -hmm. not just environmentalists. All of these Mm -hmm. things are really important. Now, you were involved with COP26? Yeah, yeah? so I attended both COP26 and COP27, which were both very different, even in terms of the media around that, because COP26 obviously happening in Glasgow and Scotland very near, so there was a lot of news around Mm. that, whereas COP27 was happening in Africa, it was taking place in Egypt, so even there, like there was a lot less media attention, because I think in people's minds, this is a conference happening in Africa, and people really struggled to connect with some of the key issues that were being discussed, which was a lot more about climate finance and how richer countries mm. could really assist developing countries that are being hit the hardest by climate breakdown and experiencing droughts, floods, hurricanes, like really awful. So many people dying as a result. I did really see that there was a big difference. And even this year, COP28 taking place in less than 20 days now, but we haven't really seen that much about it. And obviously that's against the backdrop of even more geopolitical tension. Climate is definitely being pushed down the agenda at the mm. minute. Mm. Um, and And I think it's really important to remind people that it relates to all these different themes. And I think that's become easier in 
the cost of living, like unfortunately, but I think people are now making the link between fossil fuel CEOs who are making so much money, profiteering off the cost of living crisis and then being able to connect the dots and talk about the need to accelerate the move towards renewable energy as a consequence of that as well. For me, it's always just trying to link the environmental to other things that are happening. And that's why like some of the guests that you talk to in terms of like environmental activists or whatever, or accidental environmentalists, as you always say, which is a really nice way of putting it. But I think those voices are so important because they provide an entry level, which for a lot of people, the environment isn't enough. Like they're thinking about all these other things. They don't have the time or the capacity to think about climate. So like it's when you're talking about retrofitting. Yes, yes, it's really great in terms of reducing emissions, but also like saving people money on their energy bills, the health impact because they're not living in like damp, leaky homes. So I think it's always so important to drive home all the different narratives. And I remember when Chris Stark, who um, is the CEO of the UK Climate Change Committee, he was talking at one of the launches of the reports back in 2021. And he was saying he kind of wanted to get to a point when they could talk about climate policy without actually having to talk about the climate part because Mm. the policy was just so compelling Mm. in so many other ways in terms of like the social and economic benefits that the climate was just like a really you know nice component of that Mm. that would be helpful because often when people hear like climate or environment unfortunately and then they pigeonhole it and they put it into this like they relegate it into this Mm. like kind of niche category Mm. when when it's not it's all encompassing Mm. or they think it's so big and so huge that they can't do anything about it whereas public health for Mm. instance and making sure that we have clean water yeah. and that we can swim yeah. in Loch Ney, for, for instance, or yeah. that we can breathe yeah. clean air, that brings it back to not this thing, climate, that's yeah. got nothing to do with us. It's about how do we live here? What I really comes out agree of the with tap? that. Because mm-hmm. I think the health narrative hasn't been utilised enough. And even in Dublin, for example, at the climate strikes, they always have Irish doctors for the environment. And they talk about the fact that the climate and the health agendas are mutually reinforcing for all the reasons that you've just raised. But one of the men was talking about the fact, like in India, because of the heat waves, the mothers were being induced into early childbirth and like the impact that that was having pregnant women and their babies. You know, in Pakistan, the women who were giving birth and flood water but like more broadly I guess or more specifically here like all the stuff we've seen about Loch Ness you know mm-hmm. and yeah our drinking water being affected and even if people are motivated for selfish reasons because like everyone's concerned about their health it's kind of a nice entry point in some ways because it means that people can't ignore it and if it matters to them then that's the thing that brings them to yeah. it yeah they don't have to be an environmentalist in a particular way but yeah. if they're fighting for clean air for their children that's yeah there was a really successful campaign with one of the tidy towns groups in the south and it was someone who ran a campaign about getting parents to turn off their car engines when mm. they were picking their children idlers. up from school my pet hate idlers I yeah hate yeah I hate them. yeah exactly mm. and that was super powerful and it won an award and i thought you know that's because like no one wants their children to be breathing in dirty toxic fumes so again it was self-interest in a way but it was a very successful campaign it's mm. um, fantastic mm. especially for tidy towns because usually tidy towns is all about flower baskets mm. yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. the context though when we started uh, the podcast or I think when we started being accidental activists it was the, <laughs> the background was the pandemic which was the greatest well uh, in our lifetime the greatest kind of public health emergency mm. and of course what was remarkable you, you refer to it as a tunnel in your last article this sort of tunnel of time and I really feel that was a very well worded expression because it it does feel far away it's almost sort of diminishing now Mm. as an experience but what it told everybody that people take their own health and public health extraordinarily Mm -hmm. seriously and confusedly I thought 
that you know we were always talking about these twin emergencies of biodiversity and um, climate and i thought that because they'd had this public support and this public engagement like massive unprecedented people you know not leaving their homes for months on end that they would piggyback that sort of awareness of risk risk to life and that sort mm. of thing and then they would fold in environmental policies and we would be taught you know do you know what we've got through this but there's something bigger looming so let's have these conversations about again health you know climate change is a health issue mm-hmm. fundamentally but that uh, opportunity wasn't seized mm. i i don't think mm-hmm. not not in this country in in, in in any case talking about northern ireland now you currently live in Ireland in the Republic of Ireland, but you've lived for many years in the north. Yes. And so you'd be aware of the sort of the policy landscape. How would you, and this is why we're picking your brains, the expertise <laughs> here, how would you describe the environmental protections that exist in this country and how they're being used? Yeah, well, I don't really think that they're very existent. I was really involved in the push for the the Climate Change Act that was now in 2022. And that was for Northern Ireland to secure its first pioneering Climate Change Act. What was your involvement? Could you? Yeah, just like campaigning, talking to politicians, Mm. doing a lot with Ulster Wildlife at the time. A lot of like youth activism, trying to advocate for this and make people see why it was important, like Mm. how far behind we are, you know. In terms of biodiversity, Northern Ireland's ranking, like so Poorly, not just within the UK but globally you know it's just this idea of the Emerald Isle is mm. so skewed like, I know yeah green fields pump, pump, pump with nitrates and stuff you know mm. it's just awful and then obviously the issues surrounding water quality more recently but I think as well just a real lack of political will and political ambition and you know we've been severely impacted by the lack of assembly and executive and that means that yes we have this climate change act but now we can't deliver on it like mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. kind of you know it feels a bit senseless from a campaigning mm-hmm. perspective actually and really frustrating because not not only for the environment there's also like so many other social and economic issues you know with relation to health care and child care that aren't getting dealt with but my view would be that the environment is this issue which should transcend political identity and bring people together mm-hmm. like I can think of no more unifying cause than the fight for a healthy livable planet mm-hmm. so I just wish that politicians across the spectrum would really seize this as an opportunity to see that it is literally the ground beneath our feet which provides common ground Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be divisive and I think as well obviously the impact of Brexit on our environment in terms of pulling out of the birds habitats directive all that so that's obviously been hugely consequential but yeah for as long as we don't have a functioning government in Northern Ireland it feels very difficult to be optimistic about the future in relation to environmental policy because there could be no new budgets, no sign off on big decisions and obviously implementing the Climate Change Act requires big decisions and funding as well. You know a lot of environmental NGOs here in Northern Ireland are now on a hiring freeze because they're not getting their budgets renewed so mm-hmm. it's very yeah, frustrating and a very disappointing space to be in. So, Is that perhaps one of the reasons you, you left us? 
<laughs> well, uh, working in the policy space, you know, a lot of my campaigning and advocacy recently down south has been in relation to the Marine Protected Area Bill. So it's currently being drafted in the Dáil to protect 30% of Irish seas by 2030. We're a bit late to that as well, but at least it's happening and mm-hmm. at least we're having those conversations mm-hmm. because time is running out. So mm-hmm. I think if you're someone who's working in policy, it would be frustrating being here in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. because there's mm-hmm. just no sort of developments. But as well, I do think a lot of environmental action is transboundary by nature and that you know the conference later on today bridging the Atlantic that's going to be a focus that we're talking about looking at the environment as an area that requires cooperation and there's some marine protected areas in the Atlantic Ocean where US seabirds and Irish seabirds are using it this is an issue which is a share it's their shared concerns Mm -hmm. so I think people should yeah really look towards them as such and try and cooperate and collaborate because yeah we're we're running out of time so Mm -hmm. we need yeah all hands on deck there's an expression that Northern Ireland has, is it 20 problems for every solution? (laughs) You know, so it's just, it's like this puzzle that as you try and untease it, it just gets more snaggy. And one of the great hopes, I guess, of membership of the European Union, then environmental law and Mm -hmm. it being, you know, supranational, taking precedence over local, that seemed to be such a wonderful opportunity, you know. So if your government was a laggard in terms of, I don't know, plastic pollution, Mm. then the EU would step in and set set minimum standards. Mm -hmm. But we've fallen out of that Mm -hmm. through Brexit. Mm -hmm. So even those modest protections that were there are now in the hands of local government or Mm -hmm. national governments. It seems to be extraordinarily even more complex than it was perhaps five, six, seven, eight years ago. And I think stasis, you know, stagnation, that's a very... But the, the, I was thinking about this because without a government and without all of that happening and you're saying we can't make big decisions, but then local councils are still signing off on oil terminals <laughs> and mm. sand dredging is continuing. So it seems like having no government mm. suits some people because it can just be business as usual, mm-hmm. whereas those people in society who are trying to change things, change the conversation, think in a new imaginative way because we're dealing with Mm -hmm. real crisis here, are the ones who are clamoring Mm -hmm. and knocking at the door. And meanwhile, for those for whom it suits, Mm -hmm. it's still continuing. I'm finding that actually a little bit of an eye-opener and and very frustrating. Mm -hmm. It's it's probably, yeah, not in the interests of some people mm. to have a government. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a quiet assumption that a lot of these big carbon-intensive projects are trying to get in. Quickly, be- quickly. now, yeah. before yeah. the Climate Act. Get, get the things signed off yes, before yes. the Climate Act. I mean, will we have, ever have a government? I suppose we'll have to. I thought we could just go back to you and your biography. You talked about how you got involved through your interest in garment workers and fashion. Was that part of your study? How was it that that grabbed your attention as something that you were going to look at? Yeah, I know. It's an interesting one. I think actually for a lot of young women that I speak to in the climate movement, it is one of the issues that compels them because a lot of garment workers are women, like 80% of garment workers are women. So I think once your eyes are opened to that issue, I think it's very, very, very difficult to go back. Some of the stories were like podcasts that I was listening to, like garment workers having to wear nappies because they weren't given their toilet breaks, fired for asking for clean water. Like I think it's just once you 
hear some of the stories it's just so hard to then walk into a fast fashion wow. store yeah that's horrifying but that's then, like slavery isn't it though yeah, yeah yeah but then equally you know it's an issue which you have to talk about with some consideration because I'm aware that if you have the time and the money to be able to go and haul around charity shops and like sort through them because we know the charity shops aren't necessarily the most organized ordered spaces I think it's very much like a personal decision wouldn't encourage people to buy like loads of new items you know but equally I recognize that there might be some like mums with children that they need to get out and go into pre-market is like the easiest fastest way to do that but I think the fashion industry is again a really compelling issue because it brings the human together with the environmental. So is that just an interest of yours? You were listening to things you weren't studying it or anything you were just just curious and and listening okay okay. It was actually my sister who learned about all this first it's funny because I feel like I'm much more you know public facing advocate but my sister leads a very environmental sustainable lifestyle but she wouldn't be shouting about it so I think the power of your interpersonal circles is really really important like even now my parents and my granny would care a lot more about the environment and that's because of me and her so I do Mm. I think that obviously like advocacy and campaigning is so important but also never underestimate the power of your personal relationships like now my dad doesn't buy any new clothes and I think that's really nice that's Mm. really nice that's really grassroots kind of just conversations happening around the table yes exactly and and Extinction Rebellion talk about like don't shame never shame people yeah I agree with that Mm -hmm. just have the conversation and do your thing the way you're doing it yeah meeting people where they're at as well because you never know what people are going through and people's individual capacity because it is you know a very psychologically intense thing to think about I don't personally suffer from eco anxiety but I know a lot of people who do sometimes people find it very overwhelming so I think you have to be kind like just be kind to one another how do you not suffer from eco anxiety (laughs) honestly it keep it can keep me awake at night yes and even with the storms there was a time when I loved listening to storms because it's like you're Mm. in a tent and it's the weather and you're snug inside but just even last night I had to get up and shut the window because Mm. I it it, kind of a feeling of threat Mm. which I didn't have before so how do you not have eco anxiety maybe it's an age thing here (laughs) (laughs) well I think I definitely experience a lot of like stress and find it incredibly distressing like these climate conferences I think moments like that especially when I'm talking to people who are describing what's happening in their country I think it's incredibly moving I don't understand how people couldn't be moved but on a local level I think because I'm surrounded by people who are actively doing things and living in an echo chamber then eco eco chamber yeah maybe not a good thing it means that I constantly feel hopeful and I'm constantly inspired and motivated by the people around me but equally in these conferences with like men in shiny suits it can be very difficult because there's this real disconnect between what's happening on the ground in these countries and then the things that are being negotiated in the texts and like specific language including this word or that word and it just feels like so alienated those really high intense and pressurizing environments as well but yeah I think every day you just have to do what you can in the system that you're in yeah with the knowledge that you have at the time mm-hmm. and that's really good to hear about the mm. network around you and the people around that's you that's the most uplifting thing i've ever heard if i think about it because yeah. can you imagine if the environmentalists the people on the ground who are dealing with birds and sea life if they too were freaking out <laughs> then, then we nobody would have any hope but yeah. if you see hope and you see that there is action that can be taken 
not too late is, is probably not the right expression. But, you know, there are there is hope mm. that that's something that's quite hard. You know, the, the podcast has spoken to a lot of people, some of them almost broken, you know, by the fights that they've and, taken and on. And whose mm. efforts have, if you like, failed mm. because the hedge did get chopped mm. down and the trees yeah. did get chopped down and the mm-hmm. A6 did get built. But also they've spoken about keeping going, mm. a hope and the network around you and the people around you and a sense of do what you can yeah. with, with where you are at the time. Mm-hmm. Now that you've come to the environment as a thing, can we also talk about place? Are there places that are special to you? Yeah, well, I love the ocean. I work in marine policy. I find the ocean an incredible space and just something beautiful about being in the sea. Like, I love swimming in the sea. And it was interesting because we did recently with work, like this ocean literacy survey. So getting people to talk about their relationships with the sea and put some of the words forward that they associate the sea with. And it was obviously there were some words like polluted and like a bit more negative, (laughs) but also a lot of really beautiful words in terms of like emotional connection, spirituality, people talking about being inspired by the ocean feeling the sense of awe wonder magic you know and I think you can't help but feel like that when you're by the ocean and then I grew up in Belfast so a lot of like parks near me like Stormont I love Minoburn I mm. really that's one mm. of my favourite walks mm, I really beautiful. like it's, yeah. Yeah, really it's a little beautiful. park near Belfast along the banks of the Lagan. It is. It's in the Lagan mm. Valley Regional Park. National Trust. It I is think. a National Trust place. Free, and en- free entry. That's right. You mm-hmm. can park and walk along the towpath. You can walk up to the Giant's Ring mm-hmm. from yes. there. Yes. And also up to that funny little terrace garden mm. yeah. where you look out there was a There was a linen baron up until 1920. I And right. I always think I want to be in the 1930s. Mm, rose garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. having my cocktail <laughs> yes, yes, on yeah. that It terrace. is magical. Yeah. Not having to worry about any of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know. And then Beaver Forest Park is really lovely as well. Yeah, there's just so many beautiful green spaces. But I think when I think about nature, it's always like connection as well. And the people that you're sharing those memories with. I have a lot of happy memories as well in, in Dublin, like in some of the spaces. Like I went hiking with my friends during the summer in like Dublin Mountains, mm. Wicklow. So I think there's something really beautiful about spending time in nature with your friends and your family, like disconnected from technology. And yeah, I really, really value that, to be honest. It's yeah, just you just feel such a sense of peace, you know, and Mm. calm. And now I live right by the sea in Bray and I really notice like the sunrise, the sunsets. And there's something about being in tune with the rhythms of nature, too, and teaching you to slow down and resilience. Can I ask a tricky one? Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) intergenerational there's a generational aspect to all of this so you talked about eco-anxiety I, I, I don't know if it's been coined but I, I can't think of the ex- expression but there's also yes uh, eco-guilt mm. so my generation things really started to get bad from the 1950s 60s on so my generation I've lived through all of that the increasing effects of climate change and so I, I, I feel like I profited from all of that that sort of lifestyle but also that lack of awareness, that innocence we had back in the 90s and the 80s. Nobody was talking about the climate. I mean, some people were, mm. but really you could discard it. We were worried about, probably more worried about nuclear Armageddon than the climate. And now the, the new generation are dealing with the problems that my generation has created. So that's, I feel guilty. But I also notice that the younger generation, through lifestyles and stuff like that, you know, there's also this 
hypermobility. Mm. This, this, you know, I, I never got on a plane until I was in my mid-twenties. Mm. You'd take the, the boat to France because I had to. I would have flown if it was cheaper. The young people today, you talked about fast fashion, yeah. hyper-consumption, hyper-mobility, also lifestyles and what seems to be, not for everybody, obviously, but these aspirational lifestyles, Dubai, very nature-impoverished yeah. lifestyles when people move into houses. I'm going off on one now. When people <laughs> move into houses. But if you look at any house that's been put on the market, the back garden has got astroturf because that's what people seem to like. When people move in, they clear out their, their garden so it becomes a living space, basically mm. like an outdoor living room. So at the same time, you've got this dissonance first. Basically, what is going on? You know, what is going on? There seems to be a hyper awareness of the threats yeah and yet if you just look at what people are doing a lot of people are doing they aren't really responding in in a way that you that would be the opposite of dissident that would be mm. congruent i don't mm. know what do you respond to that yeah <laughs> thanks <Rosalind. Colin. laughs> no, i feel like the intergenerational question is so important and one which i've been grappling with for a long time. I remember back in 2021, as part of the TED countdown at Stormont, I did a talk on intergenerational justice. And I think my thinking's developed a lot since then. And I've kind of come to sort of the conclusion, and this will probably change, that I feel like young people, younger people and older people, you know, are tackling the climate crisis in different ways. I really don't think it's helpful to look at generations bygone and blame them because as you say like a lot of the knowledge was just developing and also when I look at some of my environmental heroes a lot of them have been in this in the game for a long long time I have so much knowledge and expertise and you can't disregard that either a lot of older people who I know would work a lot in like community gardens or repair cafes or doing things that require they're like different skills that we weren't taught at school like I wasn't taught food growing at school and I wasn't taught sewing but those are like really environmental skills and then younger people now are involved in a lot of advocacy and campaigning so I think we need more spaces where there can be like skill sharing in that way if we were to polarized generations mm. then I think there would be a lot of knowledge that was lost and when I look at my granny for example her lifestyle is so much less carbon intensive than mine she doesn't fly like doesn't own passport doesn't really eat a lot of meat would do a lot of knitting repair everything never throw anything out that mm. kind of like attitude which I think was so common in generations past and we've now lost that and now part of that is going back to that yes. but I think it would be very generalizing to say that like older people cause the climate crisis because a lot of the older people that I know have been so environmentally responsible and conscious and I think in whatever generation you're going to find people who don't care about climate or whatever but I think now it's the case of when you're presented with the knowledge and you have the ability to make an impact and I think that's why it's important for older people now to listen to younger people and invite them in in an inclusive way to some of those decision making spaces as well and really giving them like the capacity and the tools and the skills but anytime that I'm in like a community garden like I'm lowering the demographic age by like 50 years you know mm, uh, and a repair cafe or a total library so I think mm. a lot of older people who now have the time as well to care about these things down south a lot of the Fridays for Future outside the door they're all like really old like 
a lot like over 79, 81. And that's because younger people are so caught up in the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think as well it's hard because younger people don't necessarily have the time or they're confronted with issues that are a lot more short term and immediate, like finding a home Mm. or struggling to pay their rent. So I think, yeah, there just needs to be a lot more space for sort of intergenerational collaboration. Hopefully, like conversations like this. And I think the environmental movement, it's a really nice space to be able to do that. But uh, as well with social media, a lot of young people would like share graphics or put a lot Mm. of information out on social media. And that's another really powerful Mm -hmm. tool. So I guess people are making change in their own wee ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that it's not necessarily intergenerational. As we've said, people come to it in their different ways. And Mm. we have older people advocating or just living particular lifestyles. And you have younger people advocating Mm. or also lifestyles like wearing charity shop clothes. Yeah, it doesn't help to polarise, does it? People, People will come to it and also... People change. So the way you may have been at one point isn't necessarily the way you're always... Yeah, going, I mean, I think be. it's really powerful. A lot of the people I know, young men actually, quite a few in climate space who worked in oil and gas for X amount of years and then had like personal climate awakening and now have moved to the renewable space, whether that be geothermal or solar or wind. And there is a lot of power in those stories. And it's something about owning the fact that for years they were working in an industry that was like highly polluting. And then now they're using their skill set in a different way. But I don't think it would be helpful in that case to shame them and say mm-hmm. like, oh, because of your background in and gas you know like I just don't think that you engage people in that way so it's always trying to bring people in because I think a lot of people think as well to be involved in the environmental sector they need to give up things and they need to come perfect and so many people if I've run their house and then they have like plastic or something and then I'm so I'm so embarrassed and you don't want people to think like that <laughs> no, that's really no, weird no, or no. people feeling embarrassed to get what do you call it a disposable cup when they don't have their reusable cup and yeah as you say like I don't think shame I think shame and guilt are really Mm -hmm. negative emotions yeah because if you're shamed or feel guilty then it puts you into place that you don't have a right to speak or Mm. do it's like you have to be perfect before Mm. you can say anything or advocate remember I told you about that guy I was walking up the little alleyway near my place and this guy was coming down and he had like weed killer or poison in his hand and I said you're not gonna you're not going to poison here, are you? It's like this little alleyway and Mm. all these wildflowers and just ivy and nettles grow up. And he said, the first thing he said to me was, do you drive a car? (laughs) And I was like, and he said, see, you stopped, you hesitated. And I said, well, that's because I'm trying to figure out what the relevance is of me driving a car to me asking you a question about spraying weed killer. But it's that moment of well, if you're not perfect, then you have no right Mm. to call out Mm. anybody else. But I really resist that because we all have a right to call out other people Mm. and not to shame, but to Mm. call out. like Call in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So are you really going to... Yeah, is there another way? Do you really have to use Mm. the weed killer here? Yeah, and have that kind of conversation. And I think as well it's important to make the distinction when you're talking about fossil fuel CEOs or big business owners who are very much complicit in fueling the climate crisis because I think sometimes the people who hear that then kind of let themselves off the hook Mm -hmm. and they're not the people who should be letting themselves off the hook. So there's a difference in holding people to account who have like power and privilege than ordinary people who are just 
you know, struggling to get by. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that footprint thing as well. Like, what's your carbon footprint? Well, compared to the pollution that is being poured into the rivers at the moment, mm. it's pretty minuscule. And I'm not the issue there. So it's the power asymmetry and calling power to account. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Recognizing power structures. Yeah. That's a really important part of that. And I think that's where the whole conversation around individual and collective action is really interesting. And ultimately, we need both. Mm. Some people really focus their activism at an individual level. You know, those accounts that are telling people how to behave more sustainably and like behavior hacks. And that's really cool. But I really like thinking more systemically and looking at collective action and campaigning. And I think that's also where you find community. Because I remember when I was getting more involved in this when I was younger and like beating myself up for buying like spinach in a plastic bag or, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just really not at all sustainable long term, putting the world on your shoulders. Whereas I think when you are involved in sort of campaigning, advocacy, collective action, and that's where when people say about what they can do, I think finding like a group local to them, like an issue local to them is a really nice entry point because it brings everything down to a level which is a lot more like accessible and relevant and relatable. And Mm -hmm. really important, those place protectors. Like the Quarterlands women Mm -hmm. just looking after this one tiny little bit of land and this one hedge. And there's something really powerful in that concentration of love and care for a particular place that they will be looking after that. And then down the road is another group that's looking after this. Yeah, so the power in even the small focused Mm -hmm. campaigns. That makes me think of another sort of dimension. So we've talked about intergenerational. Also the gender so it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a hard one to yeah it's a hard one to nail down, but we have spoken to many more women than men in this podcast. A lot of the people involved in these micro campaigns are, are have been women. Yeah, the gender dimension is really mm. interesting. I know we talked about that before at one bit, of the yeah. rallies yeah. because a lot of youth activists are female at mm. a local level in Northern Ireland, but also more globally when you look at like Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakata, I think there's a lot of young women who are involved in the environmental space. But that isn't necessarily reflected in sort of rooms where the decisions are being made and where positions of power are being held. If you look at the photos of the leaders at COP27, and I don't know how many women it was, but there were so few. And that's cross-cutting in policy more broadly. So I notice in my role, like going in to speak to politicians, I'm often speaking to men. And in the policy space, there are a lot more men. So I think, yeah, there needs to be more to ensure that women aren't on the outsides like it's a tale of two cities you know in Glasgow when you had women on the streets outside campaigning but then actually all the men were in the building and I know it's like really generalising to even use those two categories but that seems to be the case that a lot more women are in campaigning roles advocacy roles rather than actually sitting at negotiating tables Mm -hmm. so clearly there needs to be more to make sure that women are put in positions where decisions are being made Could there be something around expressing care the environment expressing care for anything Mm. isn't generally it's harder for men Mm. or it's easier for women like they're all the protector and that sort of thing that that's obviously a male supposedly male trait but expressions of care you know putting yourself out i've sometimes said how almost phobic i am to for example picking up a piece of litter if anybody else is watching you know what I mean if you're crossing a bridge crossing on a bridge and there's a crisp packet and that's going in the river now every part of you wants to just pick it up but there's a line of cars and you just don't want to be that weirdo who obviously cares enough that there's this this inhibition strong inhibition probably probably isn't particularly masculine I think men are much more fond of problem solving 
Mm. And that's where these committees, the committees have a problem that they want to solve it. Mm. So, for example, this problem of tree cover in, in our Northern Ireland, let's do a million trees. You know, that's just problem solving. Mm. Whereas when we were speaking to Molly Rose and Olivia, it was about trees, but it was their deep respect and care for trees. Mm. It's a completely different mm-hmm. approach. So I'm just wondering if we're not, if, if we don't unpick that gender it is about representation, but I think it's also about approach. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you think about the fact a lot of campaigning and advocacy is in a voluntary capacity. People giving up their time and that takes a real commitment, as you say. And I guess as well, when I think about environmental policy enhanced by a gender dimension, a nice example is thinking about women in terms of like city space. And I have a friend and she's working on how to make cities more sustainable, but also more inclusive so that women feel that they can like walk around at night and this kind of thing and making sure there are lights and greenways but not light pollution that then mm. impacts the biodiversity so it brings in a different dimension to the policy which ultimately enhances it and strengthens yes. it but I think there's a lot of environmental issues in terms of women being less likely to walk and cycle so therefore opt for active travel because they don't feel safe at night of course that's um, a very so, interesting yeah so I think that obviously having a gender dimension strengthens environmental policy more broadly and that's just one example but there are so many others and I think it's about diversity of perspectives and people mm. being at the table mm. and part of the decision making process and feeding into design and policy and decisions I don't know if I buy your idea of masculine, feminine, kind of difficult for men to care. Maybe Express care. Express, Mm. yes. And maybe that's from your perspective, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily a male perspective. And so it's not that, well, women care more, so we need them at the policy table. It's we need... No, they express care more. Yeah, yeah. And I think it really, no, I think it is, it is genuine. I think men do, but there's this inhibition about uh, showing... Okay, so that's patriarchy then that has certain structures around expectations about how people... Because men police women, but men police other men too. Yeah. If if you see a white van with three guys in the middle on the the front cabin, they're policing each other very, very hard. Yeah. Everything they say is monitored for being a wuss or being effeminate and then they'll be punished. So that's that's patriarchy, how patriarchy Mm. is... Bad for everybody. Yes, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. I know because I have had like a few male youth workers who've reached out to me and said, "How can we get more young men involved in mm. the climate movement?" Because they're seeing photos and a lot of the people standing outside with the signs or whatever are women, young women. And again, it's the idea of like if someone is scared to go and as you say Colin they don't have a friend there and they maybe want a male friend there. Mm. Like yeah, there's definitely work to be done around that as well. Mm. It's so interesting though because we're talking about doing the bit that you can with what you have at the time. So even if you're not necessarily thinking about the environment, but you're thinking about Mm. patriarchy and systems and voice and who is there and who is part of it, that's actually part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You're actually working on the environment by focusing on those. So if those are your issues, like workers' rights, Mm -hmm. union, human rights, Mm. it's all part of the big Yeah, everything is interlinked, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and we need... We need those changes as well so that men do feel like they can come along and also that the environment campaign is not seen as women's business because we know from traditionally female 
sectors of the workforce, for example, primary school teaching and things Mm. like that are often then devalued because it's seen as women's work. So Mm. it's really important that the climate doesn't become or seen as women's work because then the whole patriarchy will leave it somehow and and sideline it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because actually as well, it's, you know, we're talking, I guess, about environmental campaigning and stuff, but at COP and in the climate space on a global level, a lot of my male friends are engineers and they're doing incredible work, but it's still sort of like, yeah, I don't know many female renewable energy engineers. They would be more of a minority voice. Mm -hmm. So even within the climate movement and climate finance, you see a lot of like men in climate finance. Mm -hmm. Problem solving. Yeah, problem solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, get on and solve it then. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. True. I have a haunting memory of of when we were engaging with the DFI Uh engineers, all male. Um, they agreed to meet us on site and they came down and at one point we were kind of haggling with them and and they were explaining, you know, and, and the, the nature of river flooding versus tidal flooding. And Olivia had come down with Molly Rose and Molly Rose was so bored. So she just wandered off and I could just see her from the corner of my eye and she was just looking up at the tree. There was nothing, no artifice, there was no affectation. She just wandered off. She was bored. There she was looking at the tree. So there we are haggling away you know, all this stuff. And her voice was completely absent. The injustice, you know, is, is pretty stark. You just wonder, I mean, come on. Just on the basic human level, mm. we've got to do a lot better. Mm. What are you involved in at the moment mm. that's really capturing your oh, imagination? And even this afternoon. Oh, well, yeah, I guess one of the reasons that I'm up in Belfast at Queen's today is this conference, which is called Bridging the Atlantic. It's looking at issues that transcend political identity and their issues of transnational concern, bringing together people north and south of the border, but also in the US as well. So one of the things I'm going to be talking about there is environmental peace building, which I think is a really nice kind of burgeoning area within the environmental movement, looking at how peace building and environmental agendas are mutually reinforcing because it's a way to bring people together in a divided political environment. You know, I did a lot of work in cross-community gardens and that was really nice because it's giving people something to do. Um, Politics isn't brought up um, and showing people again that these environmental concerns are shared concerns. So I don't know why that hasn't been grasped as an opportunity yet in Northern Ireland, even like a relatively unexamined aspect of the Good Friday Agreement is the emphasis that it puts on environmental cooperation in terms of issues like waste management and water quality. So I think that's hopefully with Peace Plus funding, Shared Island funding and more funding east-west and uh, yeah, across with the US, there'll be a lot more of that because I think it's really important to look at the environment as an issue that brings people together. That's like when you drive with your teenage daughter in the car. You're both driving and looking at the road and that's where the conversations can happen so yeah. mm-hmm. you know bringing yeah. people across the divide you give them something to do and you're mm-hmm. involved yeah. in a, in a, a pa- parallel conversations are better than that's right face, that's yeah. right yeah. exactly you're not sitting down talking about our differences yeah. you're actually just getting on with something and that's yeah. that's really key how the environment it's a thing that we can all be involved in mm-hmm. and unintended consequence could be healing across communities but that's not necessarily the purpose 
Yeah, and flip side, an unintended consequence could be war. So, you know, they're saying in terms of escalating geopolitical tensions, the climate crisis will be an accelerant of war in so many ways. You know, in Yemen, the fights over water. And I think we're going to see more of that down the line. And we saw that in the past with issues like forestry here in like on the island of Ireland. So I do think that if not managed correctly and if we don't have strong environmental policy that promotes collaboration and peace building, then we're going to see more and more fighting and tension accelerated too. And we're already seeing that at a global scale um, because a lot of the fights down the line are going to be around like resources like water and food brought about by climate crisis. So it's going to be something to consider too. It's important to lay the foundations now. Wow. So mm. that's like the whole public health thing. That's public health on a, even a, mm. a, a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an academic, Dr. Small, and I was at a presentation. She was talking about environmental activism in Northern Ireland uh-huh. in the context of post-conflict or post-violence society. And she picked up on how that overlay of conflict and green and, and orange politics can make it difficult. Mm. So, for example, a lot of campaigners will talk about the legacy of colonialism mm. as having a terrible effect on on country's environment. But, of course, in the context of a group of people suddenly talking about colonialism in mm. Northern Ireland, it's polarising mm. because colonialism has a, an actuality yes. here. Part of the podcast, too, is to confront our naivety because it's obvious what needs to be done. And the fact that it's not being done readily, there's reasons for that. And those reasons are very, very complex. And everything like peace building and environment, that sounds fantastic. Mm. And yet you can get into the weeds very quickly because of... Did you find living up here, did you ever find that overlay those tensions at all? Yeah, I guess sometimes possibly in the context of Northern Ireland then caring for the environment. If you're looking at it from a shared island perspective in terms of promoting cross-border collaboration, it can be seen as more than a nationalist agenda. But then I think it's really important to push beyond that because obviously that's super reductionist and not then very inclusive if you're trying to bring all members of the community along. So I think it would be a shame if political parties utilised it as a political opportunity in that way because I don't think then we're going to get the transformative and meaningful change that we need because this is an agenda that affects everyone like everyone is going to be impacted by the crisis in some way so it would be totally wrong just to include members from one community or another it needs to be a meaningful and inclusive process I think with dialogue and deliberation but hopefully creating safe environments where those conversations can take hold that is the most important thinking about the most constructive ways then to bring about the change that we need as fast as we can mm-hmm. yeah What else are you involved in at the moment that you feel maybe where your energy is going or where your hope and your Mm. optimism are? Yeah, it's a really nice question, actually, because I think often we don't really take the time to think about it. I mean, obviously, the climate conference in Dubai is happening in less than a month now. And I always think that's a really nice opportunity to focus people's attention on what's happening globally. Because my big issue when I'm writing about the environment in the Belfast Telegraph is that often people are just not interested in what's happening outside Northern Ireland. So that is just like a reality. Unfortunately, people have an island mentality. And it wasn't until maybe the heat waves last summer in the UK or these storms that people are kind of thinking, oh gosh, this is going to affect me. But I think that those moments where the international community comes together is a really nice 
reminder of the fact that there's countries all across the world that are experiencing climate breakdown right now. People are dying and we need to step up as richer countries and we need to you know, assist them when it comes to climate finance so that they can cope with some of the impacts from these catastrophic climate events. And that's really difficult, but I think these issues around loss and damage and climate finance are really, really important. So hopefully talking about those in the upcoming months. Are you going to go? No, I don't have any plans to go. But you went to the Egypt one and the one in Glasgow, but not this one. This one's a bit more controversial yes. <laughs> because, yeah, the COP president is the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in Dubai, which hugely limits sort of the COP outcomes. And they've kind of already laid the groundwork that there's going to be an announcement for new oil and gas after the conference is over. So I think people have very per hopes for COP28. I think it's going to be focused on sort of like techno optimism, carbon capturing our way out of the climate crisis, you know, a lot of like carbon capture technology ideas and stuff. Problem solving again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Problem solving. Um, so Without solving the problem. Without solving the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of a money making enterprise, I guess. But I'll obviously be like watching and looking at the outcomes. And I think it's really encouraging that Pope Francis has announced he's going because an area that I'm kind of interested in is looking at how faith based communities can step up and advocate for our environment and how it's a social justice issue. So he's just written his second Adado C encyclical, which is a document talking all about creation care. And I just think it's so important that whatever faith community, if, well, even if you're not from a faith community, but you know, Christians or Muslims or Hindus, but all come together and realise that this is also part of their religion and sort of the values that they kind of claim to hold in terms of like love and compassion and justice and some of the most hopeful events actually talking about hope there earlier that I was at a COP27 were those interfaith moments where um, you had like Catholics for climate action, Christians for climate action, Muslims for climate action all coming together. And I thought that Pope Francis going is a step forward in that regard. And hopefully, because it's again, it's like 84% of the world's population are religious. So how can we mobilise all those people to care too? Because that's a huge proportion of the population. Yeah. And in whatever narrative they hear so rather than net zero and carbon footprint mm. i heard you said creation, creation care, care mm-hmm. yeah well so if i go and talk to churches which i do sometimes you know with tear fund and the like talking about climate action and i massively change my language so i'm talking yeah about caring for creation stewardship looking at like genesis and those passages in the bible which talk about looking after our forests and this kind of thing unfortunately this idea of stewardship over creation has now sort of been interpreted as like dominion mm-hmm. and showing like starting your authority over creation which I don't really think as far was meant to be so I think in some ways the church has done a lot of harm in that way but it's trying to strip strip that back and go back to the fundamentals of like loving one another and also standing up for um, sure and they can be theological conversations in the same way that mm. women's participation um, gay rights within church are within church circles, mm. in believer circles, in theological terms and yeah. so the debates can happen there even with those different stories as opposed to maybe how we outside of it are talking about it. Yeah. So, and yeah. most of the resistance that I would face in terms of climate would come from very right-wing evangelical Christians. And I think it's a shame because often the values that they claim to hold are so related to climate and nature, climate action and nature recovery. So I think there's a lot of work and a lot of opportunity there, actually, hopefully. And in terms of churches divesting from fossil fuels, again, that represents a massive opportunity because the church has a lot of money and wealth. So they're currently investing it in the wrong things. But again, an opportunity 
to turn that around and use land for community gardens. And there's a lot of really nice examples of things happening in Ireland and the UK, but I think definitely like more could be done. What keeps you going? Oh, I do think there is something about that when your eyes are opened, like they can't be closed again. Anyone that I talk to, it's like, this is a career for life now. I'm in it for the long haul. I think it would be impossible knowing everything now to step back. Obviously, on a personal level, it feels very meaningful to be doing this work too. I find it very like rewarding. And some of the friends that I've made, that's another thing. You know, you meet so many amazing people along the way. And like, now I have like my school friends, my uni friends and my climate friends. Like it's a whole new category of friendship and community. And that's really really nice and you know part of these events part of the reason I love doing them is because I get to see so many people I know and chat to them and catch up so I definitely think the people and the relationships that you build certainly help and also it's just new information appearing all the time it's quite like a stimulating environment to be in too just in terms of like you're always learning new things and I really like that so yeah you're definitely not bored <laughs> yeah I, I heard about these women in Switzerland of all places elderly women who were taking the government to court oh, yes. for not protecting that it was during the heat waves because they were saying mm-hmm. that the Swiss government is failing to protect us against climate change and elderly women are more vulnerable to high heat and all of those things. And when I listened to them, I thought, you know, I I have a job for life because if they can do that in their 70s and their 80s, I have a job for life. No, it very much is a career for life, Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 